Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts. I'm Len Casper, along with Jim Deshays. You may know us as the Cubs television tandem. J.D., how's the uh, final week of the regular season going? Well, it's uh, going great. Cubs got a win in Pittsburgh last night. It's the official first day of fall. Um, Although we're enjoying some summer-like weather, uh, looking forward to the postseason. Uh, you know, obviously disappointed that the regular season is coming to an end, but uh, hopefully the Cubs have a good long run in the postseason. Yeah, it's gone fast. Uh, we talked on the air the other night about you kind of felt when the season started, and I, I agreed that it was about a 50-50 chance we would actually finish the season, but you have to give baseball a lot of credit uh, for the way they've handled you know, the breakouts with several teams, including the Cardinals, who uh, appear are going to get to the end of the season with a full slate. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty amazing when you think about it, especially because, you know, the, the, the Marlins and the Phillies and the Cardinals and, and, and some of those early breakouts, the, the feeling was that this was just going to be uh, unable to, to contain it, that it would just bounce around from one team to the next. And, and sooner or later, they would have to shut it down. But obviously, um, Industry-wide players took it seriously. Uh, everybody around the game took it seriously. And we've been able to push through uh, without uh, too many uh, infections. This week's guests, when we'll dive into some of uh, this content as well, with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. They host the popular Starkville podcast for The Athletic. We, in fact, were on that podcast earlier this summer. Uh, Jason writes for The Athletic, appears on MLB Network and received the highest honor a baseball writer can get. He was named the J.G. Taylor Spink Award winner in 2019 in Cooperstown. Doug is a marquee sports network colleague of ours, a University of Penn alum, uh, had a nice nine-year major league career as an outfielder, including two stints as a Chicago Cub, a terrific writer as well, and is published by the New York Times and uh, one of the smartest uh, people we've ever met. Yeah, two two really smart guys, two great baseball minds, two and two guys that like to have a lot of fun too. Um, have a real good feel for for the game. Uh, so my my suggestion is we just let them run the podcast, and we'll just sit back and listen. I love it. Here we go. Enjoy our conversation with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. Doug and Jason, uh, let's uh, just get your general thoughts on the 2020 Major League season. You can go in any direction you want. Doug, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had to look at it through a lot of lenses. Just just you know, as a player, I kind of imagine what it would be like to to go through this experience. And some of it is the great opportunity, as as we saw that uh, they were the baseball was trying to take on. A health crisis and not only provide, you know, entertainment, a, a, a respite, but also just the chance to learn from how we can combat what we're facing as, as a country, as a world. So I, I thought that was powerful, but, you know, I also see the sport change right in front of my eyes. It's the fastest you've seen baseball adapt to, to new rules, you know, whether it's seven inning doubleheaders or ghost runners teleporting out of the sky into second base or, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, and you kind of roll with it. You're like, okay, well, you know, we have to do some of these things. And so I'm excited to think about what the, the postseason is going to look at. You might have like 
eight teams eliminated in one day or something. You know, it's going to just be bananas. <laughs> so I, um, so yeah, I, I've learned to take it as it comes, you know, and we've, uh, I found the quirkiness that, you know, Jason and I love about the game just has come out in 20 fold just because everything we seem to see on a daily basis is not only new and unique, but like unprecedented. So we're also having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And you know, like I'm the guy whose niche in life somehow became that crazy writer who compiles all the weird and wacky stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So like for what I do, uh, the fact that it's the strangest season ever, I'm good with that. Uh, You know, like, I've had stuff happen this year. It's just amazing. I, you know, one year or one one day on a Sunday morning, I get a text from Joey Wendell from the Rays, and he said, "I think I might have made history last night." <laughs> really? What what happened? He said, "Yeah, I was the third batter due up in the top of the eleventh inning, but I never batted because <laughs> they had a two up, three down inning because of a double play." Like this is the stuff. That happens every day in a season like this. And I mean, like, I know it's driving some people insane, but I am just mesmerized by all of the crazy stuff that happens every day. It's keeping me in business. Nothing wrong with that. What's the title of the book going to be, Jason? <laughs> everybody, asks book, me, right? everybody thinks I have to write the Strange But True book. You know, my. My mom once told me I should write a book and call it. I never saw that before. Yeah. I never wrote the book, but I am writing it basically every time I type. Maybe this is the year. This is the year. It's got to be the year. 2020. Well, we had, we had a no-hitter in Milwaukee uh, recently, and I asked the question because it was a 12 nothing final. Orlando Arcia pitched the uh, top of the ninth. So, Jason... <laughs> <laughs> Has a position player ever pitched at a no hitter? Yeah, um, Doug, my friend Doug Kern, actually tried looking that up, and like even like w- once you get back into like the fifties, the forties, the thirties, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes between what's a position player and what's not because you know you'd have these guys they'd been an outfielder. And then all of a sudden they pitched 23 times. Okay. And that's, that's what he found. He found a guy like that back in like 1912 and it looked like they were converting him to a pitcher. So we didn't like, there was no way to conclusively answer that question. So that was what I just had to let go. Sorry. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, the runner at second and extras, uh, just for the panel, uh, JD can chime in. I was expecting to absolutely hate it and roll my eyes. And the first time we had it, I kind of loved it. I don't know if I want it permanently, but I'm intrigued. Uh, anyone want to jump in? I, I mean, I'm on record. I'm a fan of it. It took me like a week to write that. Um, I talked to some people who, who managed in the minor leagues using that rule, and they loved managing with this rule. Uh, more. Morgan Ensberg used an expression I'd never heard, but it really sums it up well. He said, it's half-court baseball, and it's awesome. And what he means by that is it's instant strategic decision-making. There's a lot of stuff going on. The second extra innings begins, right? You've got to decide, how do you want to approach this? Uh, And there are a million ways you can. We've seen them all. And I like it. 
Uh, somebody made the point to me that until this, baseball had the least interesting overtime of any of the major sports. And when you add this ingredient, that's not true anymore. Now, I don't want to go to the postseason and, and do it this way. But with regular season, I actually think it's fun. What about you guys? I'm, I, I'm kind of a uh, – I like it as well. And I could, it would be curious to see uh, if, if we stick with it in, in during the regular season going forward. If then at some point in the future it becomes part of postseason baseball, I think to do it right away would be a shock to the system. Um, but this is one of those questions that we've had fun with if you were a commissioner for a day. And, and everybody comes up with different variations on this rule. Some people say, well, play the first couple of innings uh, straight. And then if nothing happens, start with a man on second base. Uh, <laughs> I, I get that. Um, the one that I kind of picked up, Len and I were talking the other night, um, you know, I, I like the concept of, of just kind of um, starting in that situation, man on second base. If you score two runs, game over, you win. The other, the other side does not get a chance to hit. Uh, if you wow. fail to score, game over, you lose. If you wow. score the one run, the other team gets their opportunity. So kind of like the college football thing or the, the playoff football thing. <laughs> the, I guess in the NFL, that's a two right in overtime. Where if, yeah, if you kick a field goal, uh, the other team gets the ball. But if you score a touchdown, game over. And I don't know that it's better, but it's different. So I'm just embracing <laughs> different. So, it, so if you did a basketball overtime that way, if a team came down and hit a three, game over? Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. How about sudden death and cool? Sudden death yeah. basketball. Wow. Right. Imagine what those lineups would look like to start over time. <laughs> how, how many fouls? How many fouls would there be to pre prevent a guy from shooting a three? Yeah. Dudes would be just getting exactly. tackled in the open oh, court. Oh yeah. Or they'd be like they'd clone Steph Curry. They'd be like, all right, we got five Steph Curry's now, and uh, yeah, cloning would be a big part of it. I um. You know, I, I think I, I say I understand it. I do understand it. And I haven't quite gotten to this point of like, yeah, this is this is awesome. Um, look, I, I get the issue with, you know, all right, the entertainment side, right? It's going on, you're 17 innings in. And certainly in the regular season, if it's game like 112 in July and your team is 30 games out. I mean, I do understand that they wanted to come up with something that just created something finite. and that still gives you a chance back and forth. So uh, I also think that there is a reality that bullpens have, have changed the game so consequentially in recent times with analytics that we've kind of given up on the idea that, oh, well, you know, there's nobody's really going to go eight and nine innings. So we already are recognizing that extra innings is a period where you're running out of pitchers, which is very different than when like John Tudor pitched against Steve Carlton or whatever. And, and you, when it's extra innings that way. And so to some ways it's, it's acknowledging defeat on, all right, well, the starters are just going to go five innings and that's a victory. So we have to kind of, we, we have to look at this as being afraid to run out of pitchers, right? So that's, that's one thing I struggle with. And then, and I think there's also the storytelling problem I have, you know, I kept score. I was a big on keeping score and scorecards and, and because it's so hard to explain how this guy got there without using uh, one of the volumes of Harry Potter. Uh, I think it just <laughs> it just makes it it's it's tough for me to say like how did he get there? You know, it, it's a uh, so yeah. So I don't know with the playoffs. You want to come back to Game Seven and some guy won a team wins a championship, wins the World Series on a ghost runner. 
uh, you know, who you can't explain how it got there other than you know, sort of arbitrary rules, right? So, uh, so I'm I'm willing to work with it. I'm I'm definitely, but my scorecard is a mess with between shifting defenses and <laughs> and like base angels. Uh, it's a it's getting really complicated. Here's the one thing I do want to say though. It is a weird rule. It would be totally bizarre for a World Series to end in a situation like this. But but Jason, I bring up this all the time and people's heads explode. Bases loaded, one out, bottom of the 15th, Game 7 World Series, foul pop-up, first baseman goes over, makes a catch, falls into the dugout, and the game ends. Because if you fall out of play, everybody advances a base, right? That rule is weird too. And that rule's been in the book forever. So you and I could come up with a million scenarios under the current baseball rules that have been in place for a hundred years that could end a World Series, right? Uh, the hit by pitch with the bases loaded. Does that feel right to end a World Series? So we we right. already do kind of have these strange scenarios that would feel empty if 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 game seven of the final series of the season <laughs> ended that way. Well, I, I, I want to remind you that the World Cup is decided very often <laughs> on penalty kicks. Penalty kicks yes. Right? They get these teams from all over the world. They play for a month and then they decide <laughs> it on penalty kicks. Right. So tell me this isn't more like real baseball than that. Well, I, th- I think that the, the challenge I have with it is I think I come back to you can't explain how the guy got there through baseball. Right. That, that, that's <laughs> right. my problem. Like, you yeah. know, okay, penalty kicks, but you don't there's not a guy who parachutes in, in penalty kick time out of the sky and then says, Oh, we got Giorgio Canalia now. And he's going to, you know, or Pele is now going to kick, you know, like, I think that's, that's where I have trouble. Like um, I think they could spice it up and, and maybe require the, the, the ghost runner to wear a cape and like have a, and have like a grand entrance. I think I would go for that. You know, that would be exciting. So we're going to have to spice it up a little bit. Uh, yeah. The NHL takes players off the ice, right? In overtime. Right, right. right. Yeah, pull, so, pull goalies and stuff. Yeah, that was my yeah, so suggestion too. You take, you take each extra inning, you pull a guy off the field. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. You guys want to hear my favorite extra inning of the whole year? Yeah. This was, this was the Yankees-Mets game a few weeks ago where, okay, the, the, the Yankees are at City's Field. The Yankees' top of the 10th goes – Line drive, double play, strikeout. So they, that was the two up, three down inning. Now the, the bottom of the inning, Pete Alonzo steps up and hits a walk-off, two-run leadoff. <laughs> so we just had the top and the bottom of an extra inning played with a total of three guys batting. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that that one almost feels like you could retroactively go. You know what? It's just a it's a it's a solo homer, right? Because you get you're giving <laughs> right. a guy an RBI that he really didn't deserve. Right. He you know he went through his whole rookie yeah. year, hit 53 homers, and hit no walk off homers. This was the first walk off homer of his career. It was a lead off two run. Exiting walk-up homer. What? Oh my gosh! It's it's yeah. No, it, it it's crazy. Uh, the three batter minimum. You know, I like it, and I I think it's here to stay. But I do think in this bizarre season, we haven't seen the true effects of it. I think we've had a lot of bullpen because of expanded rosters. 
we're going to have to limit pitchers again, which was the the goal originally, right? It was going to be 13 max. Do we need to go down to 12 or 11? JD, I'll let you uh, start. Hey, I, I would be in favor of nine. Um, <laughs> obviously, we'll never go back there. But if you go, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, it was fairly common for pitching staffs to be, you know, nine, nine or ten guys. Uh, we're not going back there, obviously. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a better game with with fewer options for for managers when they you know go to their bullpen. I, I just you know, uh, and I don't want to you know cost anybody their job. But I think it's just it's a it's a cleaner game and there's fewer pitching changes. And I think it gives the hitters a fighting chance. Uh, there's so much velocity in the game now. And we see so many games in, in the later innings where the ball's just not being put in play. You talk about, you know, they talk about baseball having the least interesting, um, uh, you know, uh, overtime. Uh, look at most games, late in games, most sports late when it's close is when the tension is high and there's a lot of drama and you're on the edge of the seat. And too many times in baseball now, it's strikeout, strikeout, walk, pop up, strikeout, 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 walk. And you're like, come on, let's, you know, can we put the ball in play? Well, everybody coming out of the bullpen is throwing 98 miles an hour. So I, I, I um, kind of counterintuitive for me to say this, but I, I pity the hitters um, in, in the modern game. So I think limiting the pitching is it's a great idea. Yeah, I'm, and you, you've really hit on the part of this that people almost never talk about, and that is – you're giving your hitters a chance in the late innings. Um, just pick out your favorite left-handed middle-of-the-order bat, Bryce Harper, Anthony Rizzo. Pick whoever you want, okay? And think about what their life used to be like before this rule. Uh, once they got to the sixth inning, they were every at-bat the rest of the game was going to be against uh, some funky left-hander, right? Or the closer, or they might slip in a guy throwing 101 in there. Okay, <laughs> and this this at least means the manager has to make a decision. All right, you can bring that left-hander in to face Harper or Rizzo or whoever you're going to pick, but if you do, and you've got JT Real Muto on deck or Javi Baez on deck then that left-hander's got to face that guy. And so you're giving your stars a chance in the late innings of games with games on the line. It's a huge factor. Yeah, and I think it's like you're trying to, you know, to JD's point, it's almost like you're looking for more diversification in your outcomes, right? You're, you're, it just seems like a disservice to the game where you're getting so narrow that you're like, okay, walk, strike out, home run, walk, strike out, home run, walk, strike out, home, whatever it is. And, and you're not really showcasing a lot of the athleticism. And, you know, hit, I saw a hit and run in the Angels game the other day. I was like, fell out of my chair. It was executed perfectly, you know, just to see people in motion. And with the shifts and all these things, there's, there's just limited opportunity to, to get on base already, let alone uh, the fact that, you know, there's a lot of selling out, not only the velocity, but there's a selling out with two strikes. It's like, hey, well, I, I see two strikes now as an opportunity to hit a home run. It's just one more chance to hit a home run as opposed to like, let me protect against it or choke up. So, you know, when you do that, you have so much more emphasis on this small uh, sample size of, of outcomes. And you're, you're just losing a lot of like what other players are capable of. And I think the same holds true for pitching. You're, it's like, I don't know, I want to see Kyle Hendricks pitch past the, the second time around because he might find something in the tank. He might be able to do something 
that he's done, you know, that actually inspires us all because it was the minority report, yet it still came out. Uh, and that's what we remember. We remember Tom Lawless hitting a home run, right, in the World Series or whatever. You know, like it wasn't supposed to happen. It was a low percentage outcome, but it happened. And that's something that sticks with you. Well, the, the, the irony of all of this and, and, you know, batting averages keep going down, but I think one of the big culprits is that all of the new parks in the last 20 years have moved their fences in. So this is weird paradox that it's easier to hit a home run at City Field and Comerica Park uh, in Seattle than, than it was when those parks opened. And there was just this outrage when they opened uh, at Petco Park. Remember Klesko? And Nevin, oh, yeah, I mean, they wanted to they, they wanted to blow up the stadium because, you know, you never got rewarded if you hit a ball well to right. Well, I don't mean to speak for Jim Deshays, but like too bad, right? Like, I just think that because these parks are so reachable now that we've created this monster of everything, every, every guy in every lineup can hit a home run. Doug, you played in some big ballparks in the late 90s that, uh, you know, Miami, that place... Nobody oh, hit a home run to right if you were right-handed. You well, didn't what, even try. Well, what excites me about what you're saying, Len, is that you named like four of those stadiums I hit home runs in before they moved <laughs> the fences in. So I, oh, good. I'm, good. Feeling, I'm feeling very strong right now. Uh, but yeah, it was it was they were just graveyards. And uh, and look, I mean, the Coors Field, for example, to me was the worst nightmare of all because not only is it you hit it in the air, it's gone. But you hit in the gap, you can't catch it. I mean, I, I remember standing in center field, of course, field and being like, I can't even think of covering all this ground. Like the gaps are humongous. You could fit Fenway inside of it. And, and, and the fast, the grass was so short. So there was this play to offense. And like you said, uh, you know, Len, it was like, it's, you kind of created your own monster now, right? You, you, you fell to the pressures to bring the fences in. It's created intimacy on one level, and it's just created, you know, e opportunity to just go deep at any given time. I have so, an idea. I don't think this has been. I don't think this has been tried before. But uh, Jason, you're you know you're plugged in. Why don't you run this by the commissioner and all the other <laughs> lords of the realm who make decisions about baseball? Why don't we um, build new stadiums that are huge and and symmetrical? And put artificial surface on the on the ground <laughs> so that the ball in play really scoots through the infield, and we try not to hit home runs. That might be a novel approach. It sounds like cricket, actually. Yeah. It's like it rolls do, like, out. Do, do those parks now qualify as retro parks? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bring back the cookie cutters are now retro. Right. And, and, yeah. we're gonna, and we want astroturf, and we want we want Whitey Herzog ball. <laughs> Well, we, you know, we do need more great athletes running around those bases. I think that's what Len was getting at. Yeah. I think yeah. Some, somewhere back there was a, the, the point that what would make baseball more, a more interesting game now is fewer balls flying over the fence and, and more balls that don't quite make it over the fence, which allows world-class athletes to collect web gems at greater frequency than we're getting to see them now and more great athletes running around the bases. Like those things would be cool. Um, is the solution move back the fences is a solution deaden the ball or normalize the ball. Um, somewhere in there, I think this is stuff baseball is going to have to look at. Yep. Yep. I agree. Yeah. I mean, um, I think of like double plays, like, you know, I, 
Um, I know, like, this is one of those examples. I, I appreciate the rule for safety that you can't take out the middle infielder anymore. You can't run over the catcher. Of course, that's important. And that is how you need to evolve for safety purposes. But you do lose something, right? Ozzy Smith, first of all, you couldn't get him anyway. Uh, you know, Mark Lemke, you know, guys I try to take out that knew how to get out of the way. It was, it was just cool, even as an opponent, to see their acrobatics, just to see their ability to get out of the way. And, and so, yes, you have to change certain things. And sometimes it's for entertainment value and the business of baseball. But we also have to just be mindful of what we're taking away and what we're losing. And that sometimes helps us think about what we might want to get back to, maybe in a different form. Well, that's a great point. That, that's a really, really good point. We have lost a little artistry uh, in the middle of the diamond. And, you know, because a guy's uh, spike is not just barely touching the bag, right? The neighborhood played, existed forever, and everybody, everybody seemed cool with it. Today's the day to get 0% APR financing for 60 months on a new 2020 RAV4. Head into your local Toyota dealer today or visit toyota.com for more details. Event ends September 30th. The other thing that, that, that we're missing now, and, and this is a tough subject because uh, we lost a really good friend uh, last week, Gary Hughes, uh, one of the greatest scouts of all time and one of the nicest human beings of all time. And the thing I miss, I think the most about being at the ballpark in a normal environment is being around the people, being around you guys and talking to scouts. And a lot of scouts are losing their jobs. And I worry a lot about that, that we've taken too much of the human element uh, out of the game. So Jason and Doug, I'll, I'll let you guys take that wherever you want. And if you have a good Gary Hughes story, I, I'd love to hear it. I've, I've got a million of them, but uh, uh, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. Well, first off, I, I really share the sentiment. Um, you know, I, I, I'm somebody, anytime I go to a park, walk into a press room, I, uh, like I could hang out with my writer friends anytime, but like I'm always looking around for the the scouts in the room, who can I have dinner with and learn something, you know? And that's already, even before the pandemic, um, becoming more challenging as more and more great scouts lose their jobs. Um, and that, that, whole, that whole aspect of this, that whole trend saddens me. And I think this fall is going to be the worst carnage uh, in the scouting industry that we've ever seen. And uh, I, I'm, I'm already holding my breath, um, feeling for all my scout friends who are going to lose their jobs. That's going to happen. And Gary Hughes kind of is the, uh, the, the ultimate example of why we need these people in the game. Anytime Gary Hughes walked into any ballpark, Everybody in the park was happy to see him. Every single person, myself included. And um, it was an opportunity to sit down with a guy who loved being at that park, who you felt connected to within the first five seconds of speaking with him because he just was so warm and welcoming. And you would laugh, you would learn something, 
and you'd go away feeling good about being there. Um, I, I don't have one Gary Hughes story, um, except for this. Um, the day I got laid off by ESPN a couple of years ago, um, I was in San Francisco. I was getting ready to go to AT&T Park. And so I didn't go that day, but I decided to go the next day. And I walked into the press box, and the first person I saw was Gary Hughes. And, I, you know, I, I kept thinking, how am I going to explain this to people? How am I going to talk to people about it? And Gary made me feel so much better because that was a gift that he had. Um, how many times did Gary Hughes change jobs? You know, and every time he came up smiling. And he let me know that. And he, he made me think, I can do that. And I'll forever be grateful to him just for that day and that, that moment in time when we met in that ballpark. Hmm. You know, I think of scouts as stewards of the game. I think of them as timekeepers. Um, and I think that is such a tremendous loss when you lose the priorities around preserving what they represent in the game. And you can't, you know, you can't analytically replace them from, from that importance culturally of what they mean, uh, not just to, you know, evaluating talent, but you build relationships with scouts. I mean, I could tell so many stories of scouts, you know, trying to, you know, calling and talking me through, you know, you know, all the things around the draft. And even after the draft, Billy Blitzer was, was my sort of regional scout when I was drafted by the Cubs in 91. And, uh, and, and it was also a learning experience. I mean, there was times with scouts that I, I, I had frustration because I was getting evaluated and I didn't necessarily agree with the evaluation or they were determining, you know, how much I should get signed for or what slot to be in. But I also learned a whole lot about the game. Uh, my brother used to go on tryouts by the Scouting Bureau. Remember the Scouting Bureau back in the day? Oh, sure. And, and they, would send out the, they would send out these calendars, you know, sometimes Baseball Digest or whatever, and, and you get this list of like, oh, here are all the tryouts on the East Coast. And I remember going to a Mets tryout, sneaking into Shea Stadium, basically. I was underage. My brother lied about my age, <laughs> and I, I ended up pitching in, the, in Shea Stadium bullpen, and the scouts were there. And they kept, you know, it's just so – you know, that it's a, it's a smaller part of this picture of where analytics, which has always been a driver in, in baseball, uh, where you want to try to manage the change in technology and how you implement for your cultural preservation, right? And, and this is what we're talking about, right? We Seven inning, double headers and all these things. There's a cultural component of baseball that we want to make sure we still uh, maintain what makes it so special and so unique. We're not basketball. We're not football. We're not. We're, it's not a sport that is is measured by clocks and times and speed. It's something else, and that something else is captured in scouting. It's captured in storytellers and writers and 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 what is the slow work of our society. Uh, and so I I do hope that we don't drown out this this sort of hands on tangible way that we evaluate people. Uh, I understand we have data. I understand that you can measure certain things. I get it. But there are some things that you cannot measure. And, and, if, you, and if you trade those in, you'd lose part of the soul of the game. And so, you know, Gary, I came across 
you know, different times. In fact, I just see him in different uniforms, I guess, because he was in Cincinnati and he was wherever, you know, and, um, and I don't, you know, have like any standout story, but just thinking of him amongst others as uh, making me feel like there, uh, there's protectors of the game because they care enough to be, first of all, traveling the country, seeing those stories, connecting the dots and evaluating talent and seeing where the talent in the future lies. And they have, in that they wield great power and great responsibility. And uh, I think they'd be sorely missed if the profession was erased. Yeah. Well said. JD, you have a lot of former teammates uh, who are scouts. And the other kind of, it, it, it's, it's, you laugh and you cry, but we see guys every year and, and we almost ask them, so who are you with this year? Because yeah. they, do, they do bounce around so much. And like, if you see a guy with the Diamondbacks one year and you're like, hey, how's your club? And you're like, oh, you're with the Twins? Yeah. When did that happen? <laughs> yeah, it's like they they should wear uh, you know identifying you know, logoed <laughs> merchandise you know so we know oh okay that's you yeah um, yeah and and the same way I don't have a great Gary Hughes story but uh, you know my heart goes out to all the guys in the industry that are uh, already uh, out of jobs or will likely be out of jobs soon um, <laughs> it, you know Pete Vukovic telling a joke in a press room. Um, I mean, that, that every time you see Vuk, the right the first thing out of his mouth, hey, did you hear the one about dot, dot, dot. Right. Um, and, and then the other one, you, you can't sit down at a table with scouts without stumbling into the uh, the room rate conversation. Where you say, what's your rate, right? I mean, I've, ever, I've never been in a conversation with scouts where they haven't talked about what, what, what the rate is that they're getting. And then, and then you slow, slowly morph into a, you know, a base, baseball conversation. And guys are all over the map. There are some old school guys that have, you know, had to be dragged uh, kicking into the, the the data revolution, and there are other guys that completely embrace it, or at least somewhat embrace it. Um, and and it's kind of ironic that uh, with all the data that's available now, that the the new competitive edge, um, when we get back to some sense of normalcy, might be boots on the ground scouting, um, because there's going to be a lot of people that have cut their scouting staffs, and and my hope is that. You know, teams will realize a year or two from now, like, you know what, we need to beef back up because there's an advantage to be had by having guys out advancing other clubs and not to mention all the guys that are out doing free agent scouting and amateur scouting. And um, you talk about the lifeblood, you know, the, I remember when I was in high school in northern New York and it's, you know, 28 degrees and snowing and there's old Dutch Dodderer, um with the fedora on and long wool coat right out of central <laughs> casting, you know, with his with his <laughs> radar gun and, uh, you know, scribbling notes i mean those guys are precious yeah they are two two quick things uh one on gary uh he the the one thing i really appreciated about him was that he said look i don't know a lot of the new analytics and a lot of the ways uh teams are evaluating players because i come from a different kind of mindset he said i want to learn and i always appreciated that about him because as you guys know there are a lot of old school scouts who scoff at it, and understandably so, because they felt like they were being replaced by it. But I always felt that Gary kept a very open mind, and and really until the very end, he just wanted to learn as much as he possibly could. So so I appreciated uh, that very much. And uh, the other one escapes me, but uh, <laughs> I I just yeah I mean oh I know what I was going to say, uh, and this is more for Jason I guess um, as a journalist who who covers the game is that. You get the best stories from scouts because they've seen these players when they were kids and we didn't. 
and and I'm sure you've gotten some of your best stories from scouts to find out about the star player and all the little nuggets and the little bits of information from when that kid was 17 that you didn't know, right? So, I mean, I I, I can't think of one that, that comes to mind off the top of my head, but absolutely, every time you're writing about writing a profile about this some young player who just blew into the big leagues. Um, you're going you're to find that scout who signed him. You know, if you're going to write that first Mike Trout story of your career, you're mm-hmm. going to track down Eddie Vane, who's going to tell you about how, how many, how few people were at the first game he ever watched Mike Trout play in Millville and something that happened. Hey, actually, we, we, we told one. Wait, just, Kevin, uh, didn't you have Kiermaier? Didn't you Kiermaier have a Kier- story. Yeah, this is a yeah. great, yeah, this is actually a great story. We had Kevin Kiermaier on Starkville a week ago. And uh, I talked to the scout who signed him. Now, Kevin Kiermaier was not a big prospect. So he was playing at some little junior college. And this scout had been following him for years, had been talking him up. And they said, okay, well, we need, what, what, what time do you have on him going down the line? And he realized he had never timed him. So he goes to this game and Kevin Kiermeyer walks the first time up and then the second time up and then the third time up. And so the scout actually had to go, to go down on the field and whisper to Kevin, I need a time for you going to first base. And so he walks the fourth time up and, and sprints down the line to get to first. Like, if we're going to lose those scouts, we're going to lose this whole lore, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. That is, that, that is great. Um, and it just kind of also reminded me of a couple of recent stories of guys whose high school coaches didn't really think they were going to materialize into, into anything, and they became big leaguers. Um, this is for Doug and JD. Um, the chip on the shoulder thing that players seem to have, and I think it's fairly universal, even guys who don't admit it. How big a driver is that for guys, even if it doesn't really exist? You know, this guy didn't believe in me, and so I'm going to prove him wrong. Doug, did you have, <laughs> did you have that? Uh, uh, you know, you mentioned you, you, there were some scouts who evaluated you in a way you didn't agree with. Yeah, I mean, it was it was important to me. I I, I can't say it's a it's the sole motivator. I I loved baseball from from birth. I mean, my brother had me out there as soon as I could walk, and and so there was also this aspect of you know. I want to, I want to do this. I, I want to play as long as I can, and I, I just love to be part of it. And along the way, you do have detractors, and you do have people that aren't fair to you, or you, or maybe you don't have the perspective at the moment that might have been right about you, and you just needed to mature in certain ways. And uh, I certainly had many of those. And uh, you know, and I think of um, you know, I was on this show called uh, Mojo Mondays. It was a podcast recently talking about coaches along the way. And as you mentioned with the scouts, uh, my, the, I remember Peter Gammons, and I love Peter, uh, kind of gave me a little jab in the Boston Globe about when I was about to get drafted in the first round, saying that, uh, you know, oh, I was a good prospect, but some people wonder whether he wants to play. And, and his point was that I was at an Ivy League school, I could have played at a bigger program, and I was focusing, on, I missed uh, doing all these, um, you know, special baseball academies and stuff to study and, and make sure that I, you know, graduated. So I had, and in fact, I missed the game to study for a final of my junior year, things like that. So I, I took a lot of heat for those things. 
And that was one of the things. And I, and I remember being so hurt, like, this guy doesn't even know me. He's never met me before. You know, so, so, but of course, I came to love Peter Gammons, but it was sort of the scouts had that role, right? They had to be unbiased in their way, even though there was bias, but they had to find ways to, and, and sometimes they might talk to you on the side and, and motivate you with it. And you're just taking it, you know, as a 20 year old, in my case, kind of hard. Uh, I, had, I had a guy tell me in an interview with the New York Times, a writer tell me, that um, he got wind for something that happened when I was 14 years old, that one of my teammates said that I only showed up when I wanted to show up at a game, uh, like actually show up physically. And uh, he used that for a column he was writing about me six years later when I was about to get drafted, right? So, oh. so those, were, those were tough. But as to your point, yeah, I, I use it as motivation. In fact, the Detroit Tigers came to a game that summer when I was 20, about to get drafted. And, uh, and this, and you know, like, this is not my style, but this is how tired I was. I was getting a lot of heat about choosing an Ivy league school and that maybe he doesn't want to play and that kind of thing. And so the, um, scout came to a game, summer league game, Woodbat league catches me in the parking lot and he starts going off on all these things I had been hearing. Well, you're great talent, but some wonder whether you want to play, blah, blah, blah. And he was just regurgitating this. So I got mad and and I said, I, and I told him, I said, look, first of all, you know what? My parents, I explained my parents' story. My dad, an immigrant from Trinidad, paid all this money to go to University of Pennsylvania. I need to graduate. I'm going to graduate. And I can play in between, but this is what I'm going to do. And I had to kind of say that. And then I slipped in, by the way, what, what, are, you, uh, what are you selecting? When's your first pick? And they said, 40-something. I was like, well, I won't be around long enough for you anyway. Mm. So, I, <laughs> yeah. so I was, yeah, so that's definitely, but. I know basically, yes, along the way, there was detractors. Uh, my AAA manager in Iowa for the Cubs was a complete nightmare to me. Uh, he kicked me not only out of, the, out of the game one time, but kicked me out of the stadium. Uh, so I could tell that story another time. But, the, um, but in the end, I realized that I had to thank later my detractors as well as my supporters. Uh, and I think that did create a chip at different times. And that motivation was, you know, as important as really the desire to be great or desire to win. JD, you know, you've told the Billy Martin story and you laugh at it, but there had to be part of you when you had success in Houston. They were like, yeah, take that, Billy. You didn't know who I was two years ago. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you do. I mean, it, it never really motivated me, but you took a certain amount of pleasure in, in proving people wrong. You know, I was a 21st round draft pick out of LeMoyne College, so I doubt that anybody... Uh, had high expectations for me. And I was actually drafted uh, in the 13th round out of high school. So I was going backwards. I, I said, I better sign or this, you know, <laughs> if, what was the old story? I think it was Kuzman that used to tell it, uh, or, or maybe no, it was Euchre. It was Euchre's story about, you know, he's, he's the one that gave the club the, the signing bonus just so he could go play. So <laughs> I, I, was kind of, I was kind of in that, in that position coming out of college, you know, 21st rounder as a senior. So I had no leverage. Um, and I do like to go back and I'll look at, you know, baseball reference and I'll look at all the other players drafted ahead of me that never made it to the big leagues. Take that. Um, <laughs> that may be petty, but um, so be it. And the, the other one that the little chip I did carry um, uh, when I was with the Yankees, uh, my first start was part of a doubleheader against the White Sox. And I want to say, I think it was Mike McAlary. I was writing in the Daily News or I, Jason, you would probably know better yeah. than you. Who, yeah, who, yeah, who, yeah, sure. Who went. Okay. Um, and, and then he, he then moved to crime and news. But anyway, um, one of the quotes after the game, and it didn't go all that well for me, he said, White Sox batters were 
uh, literally seen sprinting to the batter's box to get a shot at the shades. <laughs> 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 so I did, I did clip that out and I carried that in my wallet for a little while. And then the other one, when I, when I first got traded to Houston for Joe Negro, who was wildly popular down there and tremendously successful, um, there was a column in the Houston Post that greeted me when I landed in Houston. It was in, in the backseat of the cab. And uh, the, the lead of the, the lead paragraph said, the Astros traded their heart and soul today and in return got a couple of chest hairs and a couple of fingernails. <laughs> that, was my, that was my welcome to Houston moment. <laughs> wow. wow. Hey, hey wow. I, I, I have a prediction that you should watch for coming up in like a week. That is, we're going to set an all-time postseason record for most times we hear nobody thought we'd be here but us. Oh, okay, yeah. right? Yeah. When the when the Marlins and the oh, Padres and the White Sox <laughs> and the Blue Jays, if they win a game, we're gonna hear it. Yeah. yeah. Right? Hey, yeah. You, you'll even hear it from the Dodgers. I mean, yeah, the yeah. Dodgers win the whole thing. <laughs> we were up against it, the adversity. Nobody thought we could do this because we haven't done it yeah. you know, the last eight years. That's yeah. like every team feels compelled to make that case. Well, yeah, play that card. One of the other lessons, Jason, is that uh, when writers and, and talk show hosts and broadcasters like me uh, get confronted by a player for something we said or wrote, the player, you know, it gets angry and, you, and, and, and the answer is always, it's not personal. <laughs> and I tell everybody, you have the right to do all this. I'm not telling anyone they can't write these pithy uh, lines about Jim Deshays when he gets traded to the Astros, but <laughs> it's always personal. A Major League Baseball player, when he's playing, when he, during his career, Every every fiber of his body is defined by being a big league player. So any slight, and this is what we're kind of getting at here, it's always personal. So whenever I've, and I've had very few of these situations, I always go in with that understanding. And I never say, it's not personal. I'm not talking about you as a person, you know, because, and I'm sure you've had those moments too, Jason. Like you got to let, sometimes oh, yeah. you got to let guys wear you out. And then by the end of it, you come to an understanding, you explain why you wrote what you wrote. I said what you said, and then you move on. But it's always personal. Yeah, you know, like I, I get along with people. I don't have a lot of these, but do they happen? Yeah, they happen. Sometimes they get pretty heated, and you just got to rope a dope and get through it. But, <laughs> you know, I had a, a long time where I used to do a weekly thing called the box score line of the week. And it was never some guy who nine innings, one hit, 15 strikeouts. Yeah, right. It was always right. one inning, 13 <laughs> hits, 12 <laughs> runs. <laughs> and yep. those were the box score lines of the week because they were crazy. And I read one of the Dirk Hayhurst books. <laughs> I don't know if you guys read those books, but yeah, the bullpen gospels, I the think. Bullpen yeah. gospels, right. Yeah. And he just, he described his big league debut. He had one of those outings and the, this wave of depression that swept over him that he couldn't shake for weeks. And I thought, oh my God, like this is, this is the personal side of box score lines of the week. And I, like, I honestly stopped doing them regularly at that point. Now we had a guy give up 13 runs in relief a week ago. Yeah. I wasn't going to ignore that one, but, but in general, 
I try to be really use as much discretion as I can now, just about something I used to think of as innocent like that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's Jason, uh, go ahead, Jamie. It's just funny how our, you know, your self-worth as a player is so tied to the, the you know, your performance. Uh, I remember um, the summer of my discontent in Minnesota when I was just horrible and sitting in the dugout in Anaheim and uh, Mark Langston, I think, was pitching for the Angels that night. It was, and, and he was having a, a bad year. I don't think he had many, but it was probably towards the end of his run. And I was having a horrible year. And I was sitting in the dugout I'm waiting to head out to the bullpen to warm up. And there was, you know, a cop in the dugout because there's always security around. Uh, still pretty early. And they had up on the big board, you know, today's matchup, Mark Langston with his record in ERA and then my record in my ERA. <laughs> and the cop, he had no idea who I was. And I was sitting right next to him, basically. And he looks up at the board. He goes, oh, God, it's going to be a long one tonight. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was like the last last thing I heard before I <laughs> Drop my head and kind of walk slowly out to the bullpen. <laughs> like Eeyore heading out to the bullpen. Oh, man. Uh, well, JD just answered my question, Jason. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, how it came to be that basically Jim Deshays was quoted in your weekly column <laughs> oh, yeah. every week in 1999. How the heck Is it because did that of the stuff like this, right? Yeah. <laughs> Have you noticed that JD's amusing? Like when I walk into any clubhouse, my first question, if I don't already know the answer is, who's the funniest guy in the room? You know, yeah. and I, like I, I think Jim, you and I, uh, we got connected by our mutual friend, Jim Capel, right? And then yeah. the rest is history because you, you, you and uh, our, again, our other mutual friend, one of our other mutual friends, Larry Anderson, were uh, in, a, in a back and forth debate about who was the the worst hitting pitcher in baseball or who was the who was the best worst hitting pitcher in baseball and so yeah what, what was the year we actually did that uh we staged yeah, we a, a computer world series yeah. was a team this was len i don't know if you, if you remember this but we did a team we programmed a team tom tango did it nine larry anderson's played nine jim Deshazes, and we oh. did a world series oh my goodness did anybody <laughs> score the, the, who was the winner, Jim? The Deshays. The Deshays Club won. The nice. Deshays team. The Deshays team won. So, oh, this had to be '93 because the year you get traded to the Giants, right? I was out. The Giants and the Braves were in this epic oh, right, race, right. and so I was following the Giants around. And Jim Deshays gets traded to the Giants. He walks into the room. He sits down at his locker. He's he's there to save save the day. He sits in his locker. He looks at this big throng of people of writers surrounding him. Sees me and says, "Hey, what did I win?" <laughs> <laughs> this is for winning the world, the Shays Larry Anderson World Series, and everybody's going, "What?" <laughs> Only he and I knew what that was all yeah, about. Yeah, that's uh, great. Oh, that is great. Well, we have just a few more minutes with you guys, uh, Doug. I, I, this is tough to answer, but what are you? What are you most proud of in terms of your affiliation with the game? And I say it that way because it doesn't have to be necessarily some baseball feat when you were a player. Uh, it could be a column you've written that you've gotten great response to. Uh, I think you could go in a lot of different directions here, but when when you think about your stamp on baseball, and I know baseball has given a lot to you, but you've given a lot back to the game. What are you What are you proudest of? 
Yeah, Len. Well, I, I mean, you know, it's a good question. I, I think uh, I always appreciated uh, my relationships with with my teammates and, and those around the game, whether press or front office. And that was important to me. And it was validating to me in a lot of ways. And, you know, whether it was players coming to me as a player rep about their rights, or whether it was telling stories about how consequential sports are in our society, and I teach a class on that. I, uh, I always found ways that baseball was so much bigger and so much more important than uh, you know, what I did on the field or, or just the numbers. So I think the keeping that legacy around the game has been some of the areas where I'm most proud or, or most uh, you know, proud of, not, of what I've been able to do around uh, preserving baseball in a light that sees it as part of the solution, as part of what brings us together and humanity. And uh, telling those stories is part of it, writing about those stories. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, I had moments, for example, where you know, my father passed away on the last game of the season in 2002. And it was that day I got my 1,000th hit of my career. And I didn't know he had passed away until after the game. And I needed two hits. Carl Pavano was pitching and ended up getting three hits and got 1,001 and buried him with that ball. And I think that, you know, baseball has meant so many other things that you realize that you're representing so much more than yourself, communities, fandom, history, uh, legacy, family, uh, all these ways that it connects. And I always took that to heart uh, every, every day. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I think it's, you know, baseball, I always think of the legacy of baseball and and so that will be something I take with me. And I always try to fight to create those analogies and those metaphors of life for life to find ways to bring us together as people. And, and I think I've been something that I'm proud of is I feel like I've been fairly successful at that to, to raise these issues. And uh, hopefully I'll continue to get that opportunity. Very well said. Uh, Jason, I, I just <clears throat> remember seeing that uh, you won the Spink Award last year and just how excited and so well-deserved that was. Thank you. Uh, that day had to be pretty special uh, <laughs> for you. Yeah, I'll and, think about it once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about in terms of what you've brought to the game? Because I, I just think about someone who loves the game as much as anybody, and you're always open to crazy ideas and funny stories. and I love that. Uh, you're never in a bad mood. And, and I think that, that resonates with everyone you've ever, ever known. Uh, Len, I appreciate that so much. Um, I, I don't know where to start w with that because there's, there's so much in that question. But first off, I'm one of the lucky ones because I got to do exactly what I always dreamed of doing. From the time I was old enough to dream about doing anything, seriously, from the time I was 10 years old, I wanted to be a baseball writer. And it's just crazy that that happened. I mean, I told the story in my Hall of Fame speech, but I'm on the wall of my office. There's a, there's a framed picture of me and my sister walking home from school. I was in fifth grade. She was in fourth grade. And underneath it is this composition that she wrote for her class in fourth grade. And it's about her brother, the baseball nut. And it actually says it there. If you ever want to know anything about baseball, you should ask my brother. I was 10. <laughs> okay. And I look at it sometimes because it's right by the door of my office and think, wow, how the heck did this happen? How did I get to lead this life? And so 
I think it starts there. Uh, I'm living the dream, literally. Um, I, I always felt like for some reason, it was my mission to find the joy and the fun in the game. Uh, that's what brings us all to sports anyway, right? That's what we're looking for. We're looking to find joy and memories, and they're in there. Um, and so I've always gravitated toward that side of baseball. Uh, I, I, you know, I love talking about baseball with people who love it like I do, like you guys. Uh, I love talking baseball with people who make me laugh and smile like you guys. And I love the, the, just the craziness inside every day of the baseball season and stuff. Stuff happens. My phone starts buzzing. I, I, I know there's some something just happened that people think is like a Jason Stark <laughs> kind of game. And I, I like I really don't know how I became that guy, but I enjoy being that guy. And I, I take great joy in having somebody like you, Lynn, say, I, I know how much you love the game. People say that to me all the time. It's the greatest compliment you could pay me. Uh, I was talking a few weeks ago to a baseball official and look we we just come through a tough time with the negotiations with the union and a lot of it was contentious and you know those of us who cover baseball we had to write some stuff during that period that i was not very complimentary of the way that all went down and yet this guy said to me he said i'm going to tell you something when i read a story that you write even when it's not necessarily a positive story about the, the, the way the sport is run or about something we did, I still come away knowing you love the game and how much you love the game. And that's not true of everybody. And so I just want you to know that I appreciate that that's the perspective which you write all of this. And like these are, these are the things that people tell me that are just so rewarding that make me feel like, all right, they've, you know, somehow when I write these words, it captures who I am and how I feel about the sport I cover. Somehow that, you know, I wound up in Cooperstown <laughs> giving that speech. Uh, last winter, we went to Cooperstown just at a time when nobody was in town. It was January. We walked through the Hall of Fame. We saw like three people. And my wife and I, we stood there and we looked at that spink exhibit thinking, oh my God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this actually happened. And I don't know what your, you know, what your concept of forever is, but the, the, the thought hit us, like people are going to walk through that, that hall of fame and walk through that portion of the hall of fame forever. And they're going to be forced to look at my name and my picture and my, my little bio there. And I can't comprehend people doing that in a hundred years or 300 years or a thousand years or whatever forever turns out to be. That is insane. But somehow, like all this happened to me and I'm in disbelief that it did, but so appreciative. And JD, you know what they're going to say? 
in a in 150 years when they look at that picture <laughs> what a head of hair <laughs> <laughs> something they're not going to say about Jim Deshays right <laughs> It's I, I'm at the point now where I see old pictures of JD with hair and I go, who are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't recognize that guy anymore. You know, JD, I just had a, I, one last thought. I just had an idea. We should maybe do a podcast with these guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, not, it's not a bad idea at all. Who, who would have thought of that? Hey, yeah. Jason, Doug and JD, this is great. I uh, really enjoyed the hour and uh, let's try to do it again. OK, that'd be great. Yeah, we we, we love you guys. Hey, be yeah. safe, guys. Be well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you and, too. And Len, uh, Len, check your cell. I texted you a box score. Okay. Um, yes, <laughs> I did. And it's a NCA box score, University of Pennsylvania versus Lemoyne College Ooh. In, in Waterbury, Connecticut. And we set the record for biggest lean blown in tournament history. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, so you were yeah. on that team. Yeah, John You were Rat- on that team. John Ratliff. Uh, yeah, he was a first-round pick of the Cubs. 18 so. to 16. Wow. 18, look at, <laughs> this yeah, is look great. Yeah, May 27th, funny. 1989. Yeah, wow. we were in Pittsburgh playing the Pirates, and we were out like for BP, and one of our, I was with the Astros, and our media relations guy came out and said, you wouldn't believe what LeMoyne College is doing. And I, what are they doing? And they're coming back. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Doug yeah. Glanville went three for seven. Wasn't your two fault, Two runs Doug. scored. That yeah, it was your not fault. your fault. Yeah, couldn't do anything to stop it. Yeah, thanks for that. That's great. Doug, thank you. All righty. Jason, always appreciate the time, fellas. Love you guys. guys. Uh, Be well. Yep. Hey, JD, did you know fans can still sign up for the Cubs season ticket holder wait list? Fans can secure their spot in line right now for the chance to purchase Cubs season tickets. Once you're signed up, the Cubs will send emails periodically to let you know your place in line. For information and to sign up, go to cubs.com slash waitlist. Thanks to Jason and Doug for joining us this week. And as we have started to do, we are diving into the Dixon Baseball Dictionary and uh, talking some baseball terminology. And J.D., you get to pick the letter, and I'll pick a couple of uh, entries. All right. Uh, Let's go with the letter B. B for baseball. B for baseball. Okay. That was pretty easy to find. All right. Uh, let's go. <laughs> here, here we go. Bat night, a, a promotion at which fans are given souvenir bats at a night baseball game. Now it doesn't have the story here, but uh, was it Yankee Stadium? Where, where was the place where they gave out bats when the game before the game started, and they realized that was a really bad idea? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I think Yankee Stadium is right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you should a, give bats out at the end of the game, if yeah, at all. There was a there was a bad call or something, and chaos ensued. And and it, I think it happened at Ball Day too, right? When were people yes. launching baseballs on the field at some point? Exactly so, right. Bad day, bat night, ball day, beer night, and all, and all those things have uh, ended up with some some level of chaos. All right, how about a belly whopper? Any idea on what this is? A belly this is, whopper. This is a Dizzy Dean 
phrase. Oh, well, I'm guessing then it, 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 it's when Dizzy was broadcasting and it probably refers to a headfirst slide. That's exactly right. It's characterized by a long airborne dive into the base. A belly whopper. I love it. And uh, Dizzy once said he, uh, I think he, he used to use the word slud too. Like he slud into third. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do a, uh, okay, last one. A bowel locker. <laughs> this is I'm taking, a. I'm taking a sip of tea as you said that, and Sorry. it came out my right nostril. <laughs> that is a sharp breaking curveball. A right. bowel locker. This was phrased by Dick Cagle of the Seattle Times back in 1988. Wow, I yeah. really like that. The yeah. bowel. Yeah, just locker. Kind of, just locks them up. Just All right. React. Good stuff, uh, baseball terminology. All right, any uh, admissions this week? Um, here's, here's kind of a question as a part of our admission. When you're trying to parallel park and you're having a hard time getting into the spot, how many attempts do you make before you leave? Uh, I would say I'm down to about two. I have yeah. very little patience. Yeah, I, 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 I ran into that issue the other day, and I tried about three times, and I finally said, I'd heck with it. And I, I pulled out, and I consider myself, you know, I'm not a, I wouldn't say I'm a great parallel parker. I would say I'm a, a mid, middle of the rotation parallel parker, but but some days it's just not, it's just not there and you've got to move on. Yeah, I, uh, I have one of those uh, uh, electric cars now, and I believe I have automatic parallel parking, but I'm still, now I- you don't trust it yet, right? Well, it's not that I don't trust it. I, I feel like I still should be able to do it. And that's kind of one activity or skill I would prefer not to just never do again. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's kind of fun to to parallel park and get it in one or two moves. So I'm kind of, I, I, but I, the, the idea of putting my hand, interlocking my fingers behind my head while the car parks itself <laughs> is really intriguing. Okay. That would be fun. You should try it. Yeah. That's good stuff. On that note, we will uh, talk to you next week. A special thanks to Max Berman. Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Oboykowicz, Shane McGuire, Adam Sobel. And for Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. This was Open Concessions presented by Toyota.